Please stand if you're able for the scripture reading. John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me, because he was before me, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thank you, Martha family. You may be seated. Thank you, Mike and Heather and Micah and Luke, Mariah, Lydia, Jane, and Johnny. Thank you. We'll begin today with a series of famous statues in the city of Prague uh, that in a memorial to the victims of communism that somebody crafted six bronze statues, and as the bronze statues, each one on a different step of ascending steps, but as the bronze statues ascend, that the figure becomes more and more um, disfigured as you go up the steps. In other words, symbolizing that what was claimed in the mode of progress and enlightened thinking actually dehumanized. And I raise that uh, question, those statues, to ask, how do you think we're doing? I don't mean our church so much, just you gaze upon the American situation. The world has never known um, a society as sophisticated as ours, as educated as ours, uh, one which advanced in so many areas, and, let, and, and yet you look out and you say, it seems to be we're in many ways moving the wrong direction. And you say, well, what does that have to do with Christ Christmas? Well, in, in one sense, everything. Because Christmas is the claim that God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, came into our world to exist among us, that that same Jesus died on the cross to reconcile sinners to God, and in light of that, say, if that claim is true, as the members of our church profess that it is, then that would orient not just all of our lives, but all of reality. 
And in light of that is how we can best live for the short time that we have. Now, this Advent, we've been looking at the names the baby receives. So at Christmas time, the baby in the manger. So remember the first Sunday of Advent, we were told that the angel actually, Mary and Joseph, have the responsibility of raising the, ba- the, the boy. Uh, but the angel comes and says, we want you to name this baby Jesus. And the reason why that name Jesus means God saves, and Matthew tells us, is because Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now that raises a big claim for anyone who reads it, because what it says is that I'm a sinner in need of rescue. You know, insofar as that we recognize Jesus as Savior, the question becomes, well, what do I need saved from? Is it saved from my inconveniences? Is it saved from uh, who knows what else? But actually, the, the claim of the Bible is that in Jesus, I see the rescue uh, from my uh, sinful nature against God. How fitting, actually, that we would uh, focus on our catechism on sin, because that's why Jesus came into the world, to rescue uh, sinners. So he is Jesus who will forgive his people of their sins. Remarkably then, that same baby, uh, we're told in Luke's gospel, is, is Lord. See, I don't know about you, but when you throw around the t- title Lord, you look down at a baby in a manger, say, oh, that's my Lord. That's the one who's calling the shots. But again, that's exactly the claim of the Bible and of Christ followers that Jesus is not just the one who saves us, but he's also Lord that he's the authority in my life, that as I yield to him, that as I obey him, that he will flood me with peace, that we often look for other false lords, uh, politicians who promise to bring bring peace and make things better, but it is in Jesus who is Lord, who's the the one where we really find true and lasting peace. Then last week, remember that Jesus is also the Christ, that the Christ is Israel's anointed king, the long-predicted Messiah that many dozens and dozens of promises in the Hebrew Bible say God's going to send forth, send forth a king into history, that he's not going to be like other kings. In fact, he's the king of kings, and that as we serve him, that's the right object of our endowments. And so we have Jesus, who is the Christ, who is Lord, and each of those names and titles have a meaning for his followers. Now, today we come to an altogether different name and title for Jesus, don't we? It is that this Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And to remove all doubt, you go then over to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this Jesus, who took on a full human nature is in fact God in the flesh. That that is the great backbone of the Christian message that God came to exist among men. So it's not just sometimes you're, you're here, you're in church, you say, well, is this just the pastor talking? You know, the pastor conjures up the right phrases and it's all, you know, kind of out there. Say, no, it mustn't be. Uh, Christmas is the message that God sent his son into history so he's on exhibition for all the world to see and to come to a conclusion about what we do with Jesus. Now, this beginning, this famous part of John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know that this was written by one of Jesus' first followers, a man called John. And I always want to pause here, but no doubt some are here today. You only come to church a few times a year. You know, you're, you're visiting with family. But I just want to ask this question. What would it take 
for a man to be with another man for three years, and at the end of those three years conclude that he's the organizing principle of the universe. Say, think of your best friend, your most noble friend, the one who's, you know, got his act together, he, you know, speaks uh, nicely to others, he's impressive, and you could imagine that the two of you, you know, you go on different trips and you spend as much time as possible for three years, my guess would be it would still be quite a far stretch to then conclude that that friend is the God of the universe. And yet we so easily gloss over that that's exactly what we're looking at here. Now, if you ask me, you say you just put, as Mike prayed, your reasonable thinking caps on to say something must have happened that allowed John to come to the conclusion, to publicize, to send out an encyclical that he wants the whole world to know that the Jesus who walked on earth is in fact God. He must have witnessed the miracles, and he must have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And that's why we're here today. That's what makes the church, the Word of God coming into our world, the reconciled sinners to guide us into the body of believers so that we might claim that this Jesus is the way to get right with God and that this Jesus in him is uh, how we're, we're reconciled and how we best live. So I'm going to do uh, just an overview of uh, that first part of John's gospel and then two implications. So this famous bit of scripture, why do we read it on Christmas? I think one of the reasons that it's so important is because John 1, 1 to 18, gives really much of what you need to know about all of world history. Uh, you think that we're created, that there's a rebellion, that there's Jesus, and there, there's a choice. So did you notice in verse 3, all things were made through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now that is a direct affront to the times in which we live. Because the message of the culture is this. You're a product of random chance. The reason you're at church today is because the synapses in your brain, it's just brain chemistry, and you're, you know, you're born into you know, Midwest uh, you know, America, and that's the thing to do. It's just all chance, and you make of your life whatever you make of it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, toughen up, make a name for yourself, but it's up to you. Smashing into that is this claim. No, actually, you're made. You are made by the Lord of the universe through Jesus, that you're not the product of random chance, but rather God's hand is on you, that there's a plan for you, and that you can be reconciled to your creator. So you see creation is in John 1, but also in John 1 that you've got definite echoes of, of the distortion. The light shines in the darkness, and there's darkness in the world. What's happened? Well, human rebellion that each of us have turned our own way. You know, of all the things that seem to upset people about the Christian message, this idea of sin and darkness is both the one that uh, humbles us, it, uh, you know, it hurts our pride, but it's also the one that's most obvious. We would all agree that this world, we, we want to smuggle in the word ought. It, it ought not be this way. There are so many problems. Uh, why, why is this happening? Uh, why, why is there so much violence in the world? Why do we get so much wrong? It's not as it ought to be. Say so the Bible says the reason it's, it's not as it ought to be is because we've ruined God's creation. Each of us have turned to our own way. We've said no thanks to God. 
that given the opportunity, I look out for myself, not all of you, and certainly don't want to submit to God, and that's human rebellion. And the long consequences of human rebellion, from illnesses to warfare to messed up systems, whatever you want to call it, is a consequence of us clenching our fist at God. But God, wonderfully, instead of scrapping us, instead of saying, let's throw it all on the trash heap, puts Jesus into history, who is the source of light and life, and then gives it up to us to make a choice. Now, some are very intimidated by the Bible. I get this all the time. Say, well, the Bible's an old book. It's a large book. The, the text is small. It's got a lot of ancient Near Eastern customs in it. I can't possibly understand it. Say, I please, you can understand the Bible. It's the world history. In fact, I think the Bible can really be summarized like John, first part of John's gospel in eight words. God's plan, human rebellion, Jesus Christ, human response. Say, that's the story of the world. There is a God who's perfect. He had a plan. We've ruined it. He put Jesus, his only begotten son, into history, and we're invited to respond. So you ever think of history that way? If somebody said, could you give me the world history in four words? Say, yeah, I could. God, humans, Jesus, choice. Say, John's gospel, there's a creation, there's a God. We've messed it up. Here's Jesus. What do you think? And so we, at Christmas, if you, whatever you make of Christians these days, it's becoming harder and harder when you meet people that um, have never met a real Christian, that they get it from the news and they think, well, Christians are those who go around telling other people what to do, uh, that they're the ones who like to, you know, uh, have lots of rules or, or more and more common as Christians are a, a voting, a voting block. You know, it's not really even about God. It's just about a political persuasion. Say, if you hear nothing else today, please hear this. Christmas is about a self-giving God. It's about a gracious God. Notice again, what is Jesus? The Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To be a Christian is one who acknowledges who we are before God, our moral bankruptcy, and who's been one who's received the grace of God. That's what it means to be a Christ follower, to acknowledge your need of grace in Jesus. And again, if you're not a Christ follower today, say, I can think of really no better time of year, no better time in the calendar year to think deeply about this, to say, is this true? There's a God out there. He's perfect. I know that I've not lived up to his perfect standards. This claim of Jesus coming into the world is extraordinary. What am I going to do? Won't you receive him? So Christmas is about a self-giving God. There's a big story in the world. You're not here by chance, but actually it's a grand narrative. And God, through Jesus, is reconciling the world to himself. And as we'd receive Jesus, we can be right with God and be accounted among his people. Now, two then further implications of this. And so far as John's writing, he says later, I want everybody to believe in Jesus. And when you do, two magnificent promises, I think, here of what flood into the believer. So first you'll notice that this Jesus is called the true light. 
Jesus is light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. What do you make of this Jesus being the source of light? Now, it, it'll strike you, it struck me, just, just how often people talk in light and dark imagery. Uh, we even, you know, I don't think this phrase is used that much anymore, but for hundreds of years it was. We described the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages, that there's an entire epoch of history called the Dark Ages. Why? Because it was a time of cultural decline, a time of artistic decline, and we branded those hundreds of years in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, then to come out of that with the rebirth of the Renaissance, but then the next epoch of history, what we call that? We called it the Enlightenment. So we even say you can analyze the last 1,000 years of history, two big chunks of time being called the Dark Ages and the Enlightened Times. So people do process reality in dark and light. But less than on that macro scale, what strikes me is the, the micro scale. How many of us will talk like this, or you'll hear a friend talk like this, well, you know, I was in a very dark place. Uh, things at that point in my life were very bleak. Um, C.S. Lewis famously talked about even as he would become a believer, he said, my life still has, you remember the phrase he coined as far as I know, shadow lands, the dark things, the hard things, the intimidating things, the things that just say they take us to a very bad place. And if you're tracking so far, if this makes sense in your own life, you look back and say, well, there were dark times and there were times of light, but in those dark times, you say, where is the source of light? Again, the world's reply is, look within. You want to be enlightened? You better figure it out. You better try a different mode of, of operating your life. You better have a different group of friends. You better put yourself in a different kind of system. But if you want to experience the light, it's up to you. And that's terribly intimidating. So you're going through life, you're in a dark place, and you say, well, my only way out is to look further into myself. And that makes it so much worse say the God of the universe is often describes his activity as light breaking in. That light actually, again, the claim of Scripture, the claim of Christmas is that light is not found from within us, but light comes from outside us through the Lord. So, for example, in Isaiah, if you've been listening to a lot, um, you know, Handel's Messiah, they play various pieces of that oratorio. But Isaiah 9:2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Later in that same prophecy, Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. In other words, God routinely tells us that he is the source of light in our lives. That not to say, oh, I've got to go deeper into myself, I've got to change the way I think, but rather to say, open myself up to the light of the universe who is God. Now to go back to John's prologue. 
that Jesus, taking up this divine imagery as God, he would say, John would say, he is the true light. The true light which gives light to everyone is in the world in Jesus. Or again, later in the gospel, John 8 and verse 12, listen to this. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a claim. Whoever follows Jesus has the light of life. You know, at this point, I, I think, you know, so far so good, you might say. You know, G Christmas is about a self-giving God and Jesus. There is grace and truth that Jesus is the source of life. So then it comes as a surprise, I think, as you're reading John the first time. The true light, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And in other words, Jesus is the animating principle, again, of all the universe. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. Say, how tragic. That Jesus, the light in the world, actually, we're told, is going to be rejected by the great mass of humanity. That most people, numerically, will look at Jesus, the claim that he's the light of the universe, and are actually going to say, no thanks. How can that be? Why is it? Why would people reject Jesus? And I think it's because of this. It's like if you, you know, again, forgive the kind of very earthy illustration here, but, you know, my boys, they play a lot of baseball in the backyard, and they set up the bases. And the bases are, you know, thick pieces of plastic, and they set them up. And if those bases stay out there for two, three days, guess what? I go out, and I take them up, and... There's a brown patch in my yard. And you can see where the bases were. It killed the grass, right? No light. But in order for that to be exposed, right, what you have to do is you have to remove the base and allow the light to come in. And it's ugly for a few days, but after a while, the grass, just a few days later, the grass begins to come back to life. In other words, when we open ourselves up to the light and say, wow, what's true? That there's some ugly stuff there. Uh, the ugly things in my life that I don't want to let God in, that I don't want to give up, and there's death and decay. But as I open myself up, then there's healing. But most of us, because, again, of our pride, because of our sinful rebellion, we don't want to open ourselves up to the light and surrender ourselves to Jesus. That's why the great mass of humanity says, no thanks to Jesus. I'll figure it out myself. And I just plead with you. Again, many here today, just statistically the way it works out, that you're here with family, maybe you'd use those terms if you would be so bold to say, you know what, I am in a dark place. That my world is bleak. That I'm depressed, that I'm not, I've lost my way. That I can't seem to know where to go next or what my life is about. And you come here on this Christmas and you say, is there any way out? Say, yes, there is. Jesus is the light of life. That the light of life is what guides us. He is the constant presence in our life, which is our strength and our joy and our hope. And please don't be like those who say no to Jesus, but rather to open yourselves up to him and receive that light into your world and into your life. You know, Louis XIV, you study world history or the history of monarchy, you know, Louis XIV, by any estimation, was quite an opulent king. 
And he was known as the Sun King, S-U-N, that he wanted his reign to be associated with light and sun, almost like a, a, presenting himself as a godlike figure. And as to be expected, he perfectly choreographed. Uh, he knew he was going to die, and he said, I, you know, gave very specific instructions about his funeral. And as the French were gathered there in Notre Dame, his instructions were down on the casket that all the lights were to be off for no candles, and the only light in the whole church was to be a candle on top of his casket, showing the people that Louis XIV was their source of light and hope. Now, much to his credit, the chaplain of Notre Dame, who was officiating, as he got up to give his homily, walked past the casket and went, <laughs> blew out the candle. And he climbed up into the pulpit, and his first words were, only God is great. Only God is great. Friends, you look for light in yourself. You'll be enslaved. You look for light. God help us. In politicians, very discouraging prospect. You look for light in your life from more education, from more money, for a different set of friends even, for love and romance. All of those will leave us feeling empty and bleak. What do you think of this claim Jesus makes? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Is Jesus the source of light in our lives and in the life of this church, that even in circumstances, hard circumstances, that we are those who are enlightened, again, not on human effort, but by him? So, claims again, Christmas is about a self-giving God. Christmas is about being a recipient of divine grace. There's a God... We've ruined his creation. He put forth Jesus. We respond to, his, to that message. Jesus, then, is the light of the world. He guides, illuminates, and brightens the life of those who are his followers. Then the second bold claim for those who trust in Christ, verse 4, in Jesus was life. Now, when you have the word life in John's gospel, it doesn't mean biological life. I think we would be on good ground to say that God is the author of biological life, right? So we're here today. You were able to move here. You have uh, breath in your lungs, and you made your body. Say, God certainly is the author of biological life, but the way life is used in John's gospel about the followers of Jesus, it's kind of like life as it ought to be lived, in fact, later in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I've come to give life and life to the fool. How do we live the best possible life? You know, this was the standard question. You know, much of Western thinking was built on this question that what is the best life to live? In, in other words, it was, it was self-obvious to people that some lives are better lived than others. What's so sad about our time is because of distraction and because of the shallowness of our culture that I think a lot of us don't even pause to, you know, that question is just not one we ask. Say, are some lives better lived than others? What kinds of attributes signal a life worth living? 
What kind of behaviors and what kind of speech and what kind of social attachments lead to the best of all possible lives? And before we go any further, I think that the one fundamental thing about this is that my question of what is the best life to live is really going to be shaped about whether or not I think there's an eternity. Say, if I have 70 or 80 years, that's what Psalm 90 says, most of us live about 70 or 80 years. You know, some make it into their 90s. I think our old, oldest parishioner is 95. Um, so you might have, be blessed with a long life. The point is, is that you probably, I guess, you'd make different types of decisions if you thought this is all there is. But most of us have a notion of eternity deep within us. That when a loved one dies, you have this part of you that says, well, I hope that's not it. I hope I get to see them again. Or when we allow ourselves to go to that fundamental truth of all existence that we too will go the way of all flesh, don't we think we'll say maybe there's something afterwards? How might we know? Well, again, we look unto Jesus who offers true life, not just biological life, but life as it ought to be lived. And I think this again, you, you know people like this, you can see folks who are physically frail. Uh, they're not, they don't give off a kind of sturdiness, you know, they're, they're weak, they might be unimpressive, and, and yet you'd say they're really alive. They got a good sense of direction, there's real vitality in them, maybe, hopefully, because they have a faith in Christ, and whereas others, you'd look at them and say, well, they're healthy and sturdy, but they're spiritually very ill. Uh, they've lost their way, they've not been able to live life that well, they've hurt a lot of people. The question then becomes, what does this mean? In Jesus was life, life as it ought to be lived. I thought instead of going to moral code, and you know, Jesus, yes, he did all the right things, but I think we could say Jesus lived a beautiful life. And what I mean by that, isn't it interesting that Jesus always does the right thing at exactly the right time in exactly the right way? That Jesus did all of his life's work with exactly the perfect measure of action. It is startling, I must say, when you, you know, survey the antique world, how are there are many great figures. It's very clear you can get from the historical record their flaws. Um, you see the good and the bad in everybody, and yet with Jesus, no bad that he lived a beautiful life. I think this is what Mark's gospel means when it looked at Jesus and said, oh, he, he has done all things well. That don't we look unto Jesus and say, you know what? He's different. He's different. And he offers life as it ought to be lived. So you're thinking this year, I think it's a great time of year to do this, that you're looking back on 2023, looking ahead to 2024, and you say, how have I done this year? Have I lived a life of value? Have I lived the life that the Lord would want me to live if I honored my relationships and my friends? And is there an eternity? And you're asking all these big questions. Isn't it the truth that looking unto Jesus provides a way to life as it ought to be lived? And the closer we are to Jesus, the more I think we look back and say, you know what, that, that is good and right and true and beautiful in my conduct. I think in my own life, I've said this many times, the things that I'm most embarrassed about, the things where I was way off the rails, 
I was far from Jesus. But all the things that I look back on say, you know, that was, that was good and right. It's because they were emulating or at least empowered by the life of Christ. So what about you again? You look back 2023, 2024. Do you believe that in Jesus there's life as it ought to be lived, life to the full? You know, there's an inevitability to this as the church claims, Scripture claims, the church claims that all of us will stand before Jesus, that we want to receive him. Look again at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Say, what a, what a promise. To all who receive Jesus, then we come into the family of God, that we're reconciled with our maker, that we have his light and his life within us. In terms of how people respond differently, I heard this story. I guess it was allegedly true, and I'll read it here in, in closing. So there was a ship, and the ship sends this. Please direct your course 0.5 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The reply, recommend you direct your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The ship, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The reply, no, I say again, you divert your course. The ship, this is the aircraft carrier USS Coral Sea. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy. Divert your course now. The reply, this is a lighthouse. Your call. So I think it's a bit like that. You can push Jesus off a little bit, so you think. You can not take him that seriously. Evidently be like the great lot of mankind and reject him. Or you can respond to him and receive him. To agree with God about our sinful condition, to see what we've made of his universe, to see his gracious condescension in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be made right with God, and to be brought into the family of God and have the light of life. I hope that's a reaffirmation for the Christ follower today and a challenge for those of you who are not following Jesus yet. I'll pray and invite the team up. Loving and gracious Father, we thank you for this extraordinary prologue that Jesus is God we can't have the excuse, well, the pastor's just talking about these things. The church has just made up these claims over the centuries. No. The claim is that you put Jesus into history. And this same Jesus who came for us died for us and was raised. So, Lord, help everyone today to grapple with this great truth, the, the, the Bible in eight words, God's plan, man's rebellion, Jesus Christ, human response. God, humans, Jesus' choice. Lord, I pray everyone with an earshot of this John's prologue today would receive Jesus to be brought into the family. And Lord, for all of us believing believers that we would sense a flood of light, the light that guides, that is our presence, that takes us home, that lifts us out of the darkness which we experience on a regular basis. And Lord, for the life, life to the full, 
a life where we look back and say, I'm glad I honor Jesus. I'm living in light of eternity. This, this is the model life. There are, all lives are not equally well lived. The one that receives Jesus is the one that is best lived. So may this truth ring out from our congregation, and may you have your will among us. For Christ's sake, amen.